The title Breakfast at Tiffany's is said to have come from an anecdote told by the writer Truman Capote about a New York sightseer who, upon being asked which glamorous restaurant he would like to visit, answered, well, let's have breakfast at Tiffany's. If true, this story would typify Capote's snobbery and wish to distance himself from the hordes he complained were invading his Manhattan. This from the man who was born in Louisiana. I don't even want to own anything until I can find a place where new things go together. I'm not sure where that is, but I know what it's like. It's like Tiffany's. You mean the jewelry store? That's right. I'm crazy about Tiffany's. Capote was born Truman Streckfuss Parsons in 1924, and by the time he turned 19, he was already in print. His short story, Miriam, was published in Mademoiselle and won him the O. Henry Prize for Best First Published Story. His first novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms, followed in 1948, and in 1958 came the novella Breakfast at Tiffany's. The Oscar-winning movie came out in 1961, and Capote's star continued to rise and shine through to 1966 when he published his non-fiction novel In Cold Blood. Many people consider this to be his zenith, but really it came later in that same year when he hosted his party, the Black and White Ball. Royalty, aristocrats, senators and celebrities were there. Capote called them his celestial flock, and if you weren't there, it was because Capote was announcing you did not belong amongst society's elite, by which he meant you did not merit inclusion in his address book. In typical self-absorbed fashion, he declared it was the evening he made 500 friends, but 15,000 enemies. After that, he wrote little of interest, let alone importance, and by the time his life ended in 1984, his talent had long since settled to the bottom of the glass, a bitter cocktail of pills, failure and resentment. Capote was a small man, a five foot three in his socks, although he probably looked even smaller because of the long coats he wore and even longer scarves he swirled about him as some people do decorations on a Christmas tree. He had blonde hair, the face of a cherub and a voice that matched. Natural or affected, here he is in 1963 giving a public reading from Breakfast at Tiffany's. He asked me how I'd like to cheer up a lonely old man at the same time pick up a hundred a week. I told him, look darling, you've got the wrong Miss Golightly. I'm not a nurse that does tricks on the side. <laughs> I wasn't impressed by the honorarium either. You can do as well as that on trips to the powder room. Any gent with the slightest cheek will give you 50 for the girl's John, and I always ask for cab fare too. That's another 50. Now, incredibly, Capote considered himself perfect to play the role of Paul Varjak. He also wanted Marilyn Monroe to play Holly Golightly, but the producers said no to both. Instead, we got Audrey Hepburn, which was daring because in case you hadn't picked up from Capote's reading, Holly Golightly is not exactly a prostitute so much as a woman who wants a man who wants to give her what's in his wallet. Which I find quite funny because a few years before Hepburn had made The Nun's Story and if you play the end of that film where she hangs up her habit and walks out of the convent and then quickly switch over to the start of Breakfast at Tiffany's it looks like she's just swapped one black outfit for another. Anyway, here she is in 1953 receiving her Oscar for Roman Holiday. I, I want to say thank you to everybody who in these past months and years have helped, guided, and given me so much. I'm truly, truly grateful and terribly happy. 
When Hepburn burst onto the screen in 1953, the sex symbols were the likes of Rita Hayworth, Ava Gardner and Betty Grable. They all have at least two things in common, sexual awareness for one, and there's a great German word for the other, zaftig. It means juicy, lush, like a fruit. Those stars were shapely, and Hepburn was not, and before she came along, a face like hers would have been considered goofy. So Audrey Hepburn helped deepen our definition of beauty. She certainly wasn't a great actress, but if you're a movie star, that doesn't really matter. Yes, her emotional range was limited, her delivery mannered, but you enjoyed her company so much, you wanted her to come back on screen as quickly as possible. So, my darling friend, I have tonight made a very serious decision. And what is that? No longer will I play the field. Congratulations. The field stinks, both economically and socially. People always remark on her elegance. Elegance is fine, but it's a thin cloak if you don't have the fibre to go with it. When a well-dressed person raises their face to the sky, they might just as well be sticking their nose in the air. But if Hepburn made the same gesture, it was not the look of snobbery, but of defiance. Hepburn had spent World War II in Nazi-occupied Holland, so she knew a thing or two of tyranny, injustice and privation. She was beautiful because she was not the selfish kind. You know the sort of person who mistakes posing for poise and demands you bow down in awe. No, Hepburn's beauty was for others. And so when she'd had enough of Hollywood's merry-go-round, she became special ambassador to the UNICEF. All the babies are gone. There were almost no infants under five. Mogadishu, totally destroyed. I'd seen countless fragile little skeletons sitting and lying under a tree waiting to be fed. I will never be able to forget their eyes. Those huge eyes and those tiny little faces. For many it is too late. But for many, many more, we can still be in time. Beyond that, I must say that I've never understood the attraction people hold for breakfast at Tiffany's. Certainly there are good things in it. It has a nice song, there's Givenchy's LBD, Hepburn looks great in those big sunglasses, but as for the being a good movie, I much prefer the poster.